Are you ready for the word tonight? So uh, let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 10, beginning with verse number 1. Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse number 1. Matthew chapter 10. Now, it's very imperative that um, we pay close attention. So if you're playing on your phone and you're looking at the lights, you're going to just, you'll probably somehow get confused because you're not listening. So it's very important that you listen very closely, very intently, and uh, listen to what uh, the scriptures. There's going to be a lot of scriptures tonight. So um, I, I, I think I do pretty good in repeating scripture, so uh, it'll be behind me on the screen. And so uh, I'm going to talk about three points. I'm going to talk about marriage, I'm going to talk about divorce, and then I'm going to talk about remarriage. And so three separate things that we're going to talk about. Hopefully, I can get through all of it tonight. Uh, there's just a lot of information, so basically we're going to look at the basic structure of each and see what the Lord has to say. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse number 1. Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse number 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan, and the multitude gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What does Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to, demit, to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they shall no longer be two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same manner. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Matthew chapter 19, almost word for word, but let's look at the context here. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse number 1. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse number 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him, and he healed them. The Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any just reason? And he answered and said to him, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Then he said to him, Why then did Moses give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of their hearts, permitted you to divorce your wife, but you from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, is it better not to marry? 
and he said to them, All cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Tonight, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, this is our second session in our point session tonight. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together to hear your word, your word of truth, that your word go forth in power and boldness, and I pray that we would not only be informed tonight, but we would be formed by the Holy Spirit. And everyone shouted a great big amen. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage are very hard subjects to explore. But I believe that God is very clear about these subjects. It's very hard for us to accept it, but it's not hard for God. God was very clear in Scripture of His expectations of marriage, the exceptions for divorce and remarriage. Divorce and remarriage is so common in our society that it is no longer a trend it is something commonplace. If you say anything about divorce and remarriage, especially in our church, or church universally, people become very offended because their source of authority is based upon their experience. It's based upon their feelings. So people are very easily offended when you start to question the reason why they are divorced or the reason why they are remarried because... We have developed a society, developed a church culture, where we have elevated our feelings as the source of authority in our life. And as Christians, what we have to understand is it doesn't matter what society allows or what the laws of the state allows. Our standard of reference and our standard of authority is the Word of God, and it is not the laws of America. Now, we should abide by the laws of America. If it does not contradict, if it's not illegal or unethical, we should try our best to follow the laws of the land, for they're of God. But when the laws of the land contradict Scripture, then we do have a problem. Can I hear an amen? So, we have to ask ourselves, what does the Lord say about this matter? What does the Lord say? Scripture is our reference. Scripture is our authority. Now, I am not speaking from experience, obviously. And I am not speaking as somebody who has experienced certain things. However, I am a preacher and I'm a student of the Word of God. And my experience does not qualify me to preach. I'm a preacher. I study the Word of God. Whether I like it or whether you like it, the Word of God is true for the single and the married. Am I right? Now, it's good sometimes to hear from experience. But whether experience is involved or not, it does not elevate the Word or de-elevate the Word. The Word is the Word. I'm just the mouthpiece. Would you agree with that? The Scripture is clear that we are living in perilous times. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, the Bible says, for the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. They will give heed according to their own desires because they have itching ears. 
and they'll heap up for themselves teachers. He said the time is coming where people will give heed to things that make them feel good. Did you hear what the Scripture says? They won't adhere to sound teaching or sound doctrine. They'll give heed to teachers who itch their ears for pleasure. People are drawn to pleasure more than they're drawn to correction. And the Word of God is our source of correction. Why does the Word of God correct? It corrects to direct. Somebody say that with me. It corrects. Say it again. It corrects to direct. So people are naturally are more comfortable with pleasure than they are when the Word of God corrects. But it is there to direct. Anything that I say tonight, it is covered with the grace of God. Because the grace of God, according to Scripture, has appeared to us all. And God's grace is upon us. His love is upon us. And I am thankful for His mercy and His grace in spite of the decisions that maybe we have made that was not God's perfect will. And if you are here tonight and you're thankful for the grace of God, in spite of the things we mess up, can I hear an amen? We're grateful. So everything I say tonight is overlaid with the grace of God. It is covered with the love of God. But at the same time, I want you to give heed to the truth of God. Can I hear an amen? So the very first thing I want to look at tonight is marriage. I want to look at marriage. As I study this, this is going to make me a better husband. Somebody say amen. God's basic rule for marriage is this. One man, one woman for life. That's God's basic rule for marriage. Say this with me. One man, one woman for life. That is God's basic rule for marriage. One man for one woman for life. Not one man with three women for life. Not one man and one man for life. One man plus one woman for life. Marriage is a covenant and it's not necessarily a contract. Although there is a contract involved, it is a covenant relationship. You see, marriage is a serious covenant binding of two people. It's very serious. Before you say, I do at the altar, you better make sure that you're in it for the long haul. It is not something that you should go in just because you want a wedding dress. I remember a few years ago, I was counseling a girl, sweet girl, loving girl, beautiful girl. She came to my office and um, she didn't want to be married anymore. And I said, well, why don't you want to be married anymore? She says, well, I just, I just don't. I just don't want to. Just you know, you know, sleeping with my husband's disgusting. I just, I just don't want to do it anymore. I just. And I said, uh, so her grandma was there with me, and I know that they was expecting me to be sympathetic, but I just looked at her and said, "Listen, God's counsel to you is to go home to your husband." She looked at me. But that's God's rule. Marriage is for life. You know, marriage is so serious. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 19, you don't have to turn there, it'll be behind me. Matthew chapter 19, the Bible says in verse number 10, His disciples said, if such is the case, 
of the man with his wife, is it better not to marry? In other words, Jesus gave the stipulation for marriage, and what was the disciples' response? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. The disciples were so perplexed about this marriage thing because Jesus said, listen, I know Moses told you this, and the only reason Moses told you that was because you all were stiff-necked and hard-hearted. But really, marriage is for life, and the only reason you can get divorced is because of adultery. And the disciples were so perplexed, they were like, well, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. Maybe we should just become single. And Jesus goes on and gives that discourse that some are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, some are chosen to be eunuchs, some uh, make themselves eunuchs. He says, if you can bear it, bear it. It means if you can be single, then do it. But not everybody can do that, Jesus said. He said, so the disciples were so perplexed by it because Jesus' rule about marriage was so strict. The disciples were like, well, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. You see, marriage is so important that the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, Peter, said that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that it is so sacred that if there is conflict in the marriage, your prayers could be hindered. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding. In other words, husbands, dwell with your partner, your wife, with understanding. Give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together, of the grace of life, that your prayers are not hindered. So marriage is so sacred that the disciples were so perplexed by it that they thought, well, maybe we shouldn't marry because Jesus' rule was so strict. And the Scripture is clear that your prayers could be hindered if there is not a relationship, if there is not this collaboration between the husband and the wife. So you may ask the question, what is the purpose of marriage? And I'm glad... You've asked. There are six reasons, and you need, to, you need to write small because I've had lots of information. Number one, the purpose of marriage is procreation. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 28. Genesis 1 and verse number 28. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 28, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So one of the first reasons for marriage is procreation, to have children. Be blessed, be fruitful, and multiply. Number two, the purpose of marriage is for pleasure. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but the fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Paul was very clear, or we think it was Paul, was very clear that marriage... The marriage bed is undefiled. That means it's, the marriage bed is for pleasure. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives this discourse about the principles of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 2, Paul utters these words, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprave one another except for 
consent only for a time, that you may give yourself to fasting and to prayer, and come together quick, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The purpose of marriage is not only for procreation, but the purpose of marriage is for pleasure. The marriage bed is undefiled, and the Scripture records that the husband is to give his body to the wife, and vice versa. Scripture says, do not withhold it, one another. Do not hold sexual, do not hold sex from one another. For if you do that, you will give a foothold to the enemy. Don't, don't do that. Number three, the purpose of marriage is for purity. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, for purity. The Scripture says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. You know what Paul is saying? Because of sexual immorality, because of sexual sin, you need to get married. You need to stay pure. And one of the ways you can stay pure is by getting married. Because of sexual immorality that's in the world, you need to get married and save yourself from temptation. So Paul's word to these people was if you're struggling with raging hormones, you need to find a wife or you need to find a husband. Number four, the purpose of marriage is provision. Provision. In other words, when the two becomes one, according to Matthew 19, you are to leave and you are to cleave. You are to take care of your wife. There should be that provision. God didn't call you to move in with mama and daddy. God called the husband to provide for the wife. And can I hear an amen up in this house? Come on. If you've got to take her to mama's house for three years, you don't need to be marrying her until you've got the money to take care of her. I know that ain't popular, but I just wish somebody would disagree with the preacher. Say, I think I agree with that. Okay, six people. So you're saying to me that it's mommy and daddy's responsibility to take care of your new bride? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So provision. You know, one of the things in the Jewish culture is that a man has to present, is this right, Pastor David? He has to present a what? A gift. He has to buy the what? wife. Present a gift to the father, and if he doesn't have adequate resources to take her and provide for her, guess what the father says? You ain't marrying my daughter. Okay? So there has to be provision. Number five, now listen, there's exceptions. There's hard times. People had difficult times. There's financial times. But you understand the point is that that mom and daddy's home is not made permanently Number five, I'm going to preach it anyway. Number five, partnership. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. So it's partnership coming together. And the last thing is picture. It's a picture. So marriage, the purpose of marriage is number one, procreation. It's for pleasure. It's for purity. It's for provision. It's for partnership. And lastly, it is a picture. A picture of what? Christ and the church. Genesis, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. So all you married folks, you've got to ask yourself, is my marriage 
a picture of Christ and the church? Is it a picture of Christ and the church? I don't have to ask myself that question. I'm free from that now. So I'll just tell you all. Verse number 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse number 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. And you'll see the parallel. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So you get the point. He's paralleling the church and the marriage. You get that point that he's going back and forth. And so the purpose of marriage is procreation. It's pleasure. It's purity. It's provision. And it's partnership. And it's a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage, and I want to reemphasize this because it's so very important, marriage saves us from temptation. It saves us from immorality. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let you have your own husband and wife. Don't give a foothold to the enemy. So it saves us from immorality. It saves us from temptation. The Bible also says, you know, Paul says, I don't want you to burn with lust. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, if you're burning with lust, he says, if you cannot exercise self-control, then get married. For it is better to marry than it is to burn with passion. So marriage is good, honorable unto the Lord. The Bible says, now, I want to just go quickly through this because I think it's important. If you turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you turn it there, the heading of that chapter in most Bibles will say the principles of marriage. The principles of marriage, okay? So if you open your Bible and you go to 1 Corinthians 7, my Bible says the principles of marriage, that's the heading. And what I want you to see here, and it's very, very important because I don't have time to read all of it, but what I want to say here is that the church that Paul was writing here in Corinthians is the Corinthian church, okay? And the Corinthian church was a church that had a lot of issues. Now, I want you to say this with me. That church had a lot of issues. And so guess what Paul is doing? He's going to write to the church. He's going to address the issues. And the reason they had so much issues is because Rome was the porn capital of the world, basically. I mean, Los Angeles didn't have anything compared to Rome. Seriously. Rome was the porn capital of the world. In other words, Rome didn't even really have a, a, a law concerning marriage. As a matter of fact, Nero, who was an emperor of Rome, who persecuted the Christians, uh, persecuted Peter and Paul, he was the first in Roman history to perform a same-sex marriage. We think that that is something new, but it's not nothing new. Uh, Nero also married his partner. He was also the one that burnt down the city of Rome and blamed it on the Christians. So Rome was the porn capital of the world. You, homosexuality, bathhouses, uh, polygamy, you name it, it was all legalized. Molestation of children. As a matter of fact, Rome had a unwritten law that a grown man should introduce a young man at the age of 13 to manhood by penetrating him. That is the culture that Corinth was in. 
this church was in, and they had questions about sex and marriage and divorce because the culture was so filthy and nasty, they didn't know what to believe. They didn't know what to, they didn't know what, what to do. And almost the church had the attitude, don't have any sex. And I can understand that because they were around sex all the time. And the church was like, just don't do it at all. And that's what happens in our culture. When we see something good that's polluted, we take the extreme. And being the extreme of something is not the best thing. This church wanted to take the extreme to the approach. Let's just forbid sexual activity. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. That's, that's not God's plan. And they didn't have a balanced approach. And so they somehow wrote to the Apostle Paul. Now, how do I know that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Look behind me. Look, at, look what Paul says here. He says in verse number 1, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote me. So, so obviously, this church was writing him or inquiring in him of some questions. Paul was like, I'm writing to you. I'm going to answer your questions. Now, church, do you understand what's going on here? The culture is it's debauchery. There is filth. There, it's the porn capital of the world. Rome didn't have any laws concerning sex, and if it was, it was loosely followed. There was homosexuality. There was polygamy. There was molestation. I mean, it was bathhouses. It was sickening. And this church is acquiring of Paul. What is the standards? We, we've been delivered. We have been brought out of that lifestyle. What should we believe? And Paul first starts out by saying, number one, this is what Paul says to these Christians. He says, well, number one, well, first, before I say that, let me make sure you understand, because when you read this, Paul will say this. Paul will use the words, this is not from the Lord, this is from I. I'm saying this. And we, don't have, a we have a tendency to say, well, that's just not from the Lord. It is from the Lord. Because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 40, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 40, he says this, but she is happier if she remains as is according to my judgment, and I think I have the Spirit of God. Paul is saying, I have the Spirit of God on this matter. The Lord didn't say it in the Gospels, but I have the Spirit of God. This is a revelation that's given to me. So what Paul is saying here is from the Spirit of God. And so the first thing that Paul addresses here is people who are single, single. Number one, he gives this idea that remaining celibate and single is okay. It's good and it's okay. How do we see that? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 1. Look at it. Verse number 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Period. He says, so the very first thing I'm going to address, it is a, it's okay to be celibate. Nothing wrong with it, it's good. Number one, he says, the first thing I'm going to address, it's okay not to touch a woman. Verse number seven, he says, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each has his own gift from God and one in this manner and another in that. He says, I wish they were all like me, but obviously everybody has their own gift. Okay? And then he says in verse number 35, 
He says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. Look at the words here. He says, and I say this to you. He's speaking of people who are unmarried. He says, I don't want to put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So what is the Apostle Paul trying to say here? Look at verse 32. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. So the very first thing the Apostle Paul states is that it's okay if you want to remain single and if you want to remain celibate. That's all right. But Paul gives us the indication that this is probably not the norm. This is not the norm. This is really just the exception. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19? Jesus says, some people are eunuchs by choice. Some people, you know, won't get married and they'll be celibate. But he says, a lot of people won't be able to handle that. Remember that? Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse number 12. 19, verse 12. Matthew 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs. What is a eunuch? It's a eunuch is somebody who can't perform sexually or somebody that was made to be that way or somebody that chose to be that way. Are eunuchs who are made for themselves, eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. But Jesus said in verse number 11, not everybody can accept this. So the very first thing that Paul addresses here is singleness is, is, is okay if that's what you choose. And Paul says it's a gift. Not everybody can handle it. It is the exception, not the norm. Now, marriage is the norm because he made a case and said that you need to be married to save yourself from sexual immorality. Did I not just read that? He said, so you better get married because it's going to save you in the long run. But if you've got some gift of celibacy, then... Now, Paul is not saying remain unmarried and just go have a bunch of premarital sex. Did y'all just hear what I said? No, no, no. If you're going to remain single, that means no what? None. And if you can do that, that's fine. But if you can't, you better be getting to the altar real quick. At least you give a foothold to the devil. So, number one, that's what he says. Number two, he addresses the issue, is sex evil? Now, they were given this indication that something, something was off because 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, verse 7, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he says, don't withhold it from each other. He says, he says if you do that, only do it for a short time because the enemy may tempt you. In other words, there were some Christians in the Corinth church they were thinking this. Don't lose me. They were thinking this. If I withhold sex from my partner, then that is pleasing to the Lord, and somehow I'm holier than people who are participating. Paul is like, no, you got the miss, you're missing the point. One of the purposes of marriage is for pleasure, and you are not to withhold it from your spouse. Don't do that unless you give a foothold to the enemy. 
see that? So sex is not evil. It's something that one man and one woman in holy marriage can participate in. Verse number 3, he answers the question. He says, should a divorce, should you divorce your unbelieving spouse? That was the next thing he addressed. So he addressed, he addressed singleness. He addressed the idea of sex being good or evil. Then he addresses, should you divorce your unbelieving spouse? Read the context here. He goes right after one issue, right after the other. And so clearly he says in verse number 12, so I dealt with singleness, verses 1 through 9. Uh, and then we dealt with the issue of is sex evil? And then he deals with the issue in verse number 10 of the divorcing an unbelieving spouse. Verse number 12. This is what he says about this question. Verse number 12. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if she is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. Verse 15, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, I know your first question is, I thought we're not supposed to marry an unbeliever. We're not supposed to be unequally yoked. But remember the context. They're living in a perverse society. They were coming out of fornication. They were coming out of homosexuality. And some of them were saved. And some of their spouses didn't come to the truth yet. So that's the context that's happening. And Paul is like saying, you should not divorce your unbelieving spouse. Don't do it. He says, just because you're saved doesn't give you a reason to divorce your unbelieving spouse. What does Paul say here? He says, verse number 13, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 7, 13, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Don't do it. If you can live, if he's willing to stay with you, even though you are a believer, don't make it difficult for him to leave. Don't, don't do that. Now, if he chooses to leave, you let him leave because you're not under such bondage. But you're not to divorce your unbelieving spouse. You're to stay with them. Now, why? Because Paul says you become a sanctifying force in the, in the home. In other words, it's probably better for him or her to live with somebody saved than to live with someone that's not saved. You can become an instrument. Now, hold on. He doesn't say that you're going to save them. Now, Paul said, some of you have the idea that I just need to hold on to that unbelieving spouse. Even though he wants to leave, I'm not going to let him leave because he might get saved. And Paul says, don't have that attitude. Verse number 16, 1 Corinthians 7, 16. Look what Paul says here. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife? He says, do not hold on to the unbelieving spouse. If they want to go, you let them go. 
because you holding on to them is not going to save them. If they want to leave, let them leave. See what Paul is saying here? So he addresses these issues. He goes on and he, and he there's another issue. He says, well, conversion, people who are virgins, can they get married? People who are unmarried? Of course. And that's a very simple question. But why were they asking this question? Because they were viewing sex as evil, really. Staying away from it. The culture is perverse. Don't, 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 you know. And he's like, you're looking at it wrong. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 27. Look at it. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Verse 28. But even if you, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Virgin marries, she is not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So he says, it's okay to get married. You're not sinning by getting married. Go ahead and get married. Because some people in the church was teaching, it's, it's sinful. Stay away from it. Paul's like, that's, that's ludicrous. Just get married. The next question he asks is this. Should fathers allow their daughters to marry? Now that's interesting, but that was a question in this. Now how many fathers in the building thought that? I don't know if I'm going to let you marry so-and-so. But this, this was a question in the Corinthian church. How do I know that? Well, the Bible says in verse number 36, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 36, but if a man thinks that he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, and if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Verse number 37. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having not necessity, but has power over his own will, and so determined in his heart that he would keep his virgin does well. So then he does give her in marriage does well. But he who does not give in marriage does better. In other words, he's like fathers. If you have daughters, okay, a virgin here is translated daughter. Okay, so you know, so masters translated father in this context. It says fathers and daughters. Fathers were overprotective of their daughters and they're thinking, maybe I shouldn't allow them to get married. And Paul was saying, let them get married if they want to get married. Now, if they stay single, that's fine, but let them get married if they want to get married. And the last thing he deals with is, what about widows? Can they get married? Well, yes, of course. Verse number 39, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. Okay? But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to marry to whom she wishes. Now get this. Only in the Lord. So he says, now, if you're going to get remarried, widows, you've got to marry a Christian. Don't be married an unbeliever. You know better now. Don't be married an unbeliever. Only in the Lord. So what are you saying, Pastor Josh? Paul, right into these Christians, simply saying, listen, marriage is wonderful. Marriage is God-ordained. Marriage is something to be participated in by all. It is the norm. That's the normal way of living. There are some 
who has a gift of singleness. They're neither greater or higher than those who are married. It's just they have that gift. And he says widows need to get married. Young women need to get married. Marriage is good. That's his whole stance in 1 Corinthians, that it's good. As long as it's in marriage. Now, if you've got some sort of gift, which is the exception, it's not the norm, then be it unto you. But Jesus said it's very hard to follow that. And everyone said amen. Number two, let's look at divorce. Let's look at divorce. How does God view divorce? Well, God is very clear about divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, although this is an Old Testament uh, statement, I'm going to prove to you this was God's heart. For the Lord of God of Israel says that He hates divorce. God hates divorce. And you should hate divorce too. 50% of people in America, 50% including uh, Christians and non-Christians, I'm not lumping them together, uh, will get a divorce. 50% of all marriages in America will end in divorce. One of the top reasons why people get a divorce is over money problems. That's, that's a big issue in marriages. Number two, one of the things that people say they get divorced over, they're not compatible to one another. That's a, that's a issue. So number one, it's money problems. Number two, it's I'm not compatible. Guess what number three is? I don't love them anymore. That's number three. Number four, they get divorce over sexual immorality or some kind of sexual sin. So, but what does God say about divorce? And you know, one of the things I've learned, you know, why, why does people get divorced? Why does it happen? Well, there's, I can give you a big theological answer, but the answer that's in Scripture is simple. Because people are broken. That's why people get divorced. People are hurting, and that's why people get divorced. You know, so God understands what hurt is, and God understands divorce. I want to make sure that you understand that. God understands divorce. Now you say, but pastor, he doesn't understand the hell I went through. He, you, you don't even, I may not even understand, but God understands divorce. Now I'm going to prove to you, he understands it. Okay? Because marriage is a picture of what God was trying to do from the beginning. Marriage was a picture of what God was trying to do from the foundation of the world. He, he had a love affair with His people, but His people committed adultery. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church in the New Testament. And that's why God hates divorce. He hates it. Because it represents more than just two people coming together. It's a picture of what God is trying to reconcile in the world. That's what, that's what marriage is. And so God understands divorce. Now, how do I know that? Because Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, God is speaking to the people and God said this. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3. Deuteronomy 7 and verse number 3. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to your sons, nor take your daughters for your son. Verse, go on to the next verse. In other words, he says, what's going to happen if you marry these people? He says, they're going to turn you aside to other gods. So this is, this is the issue. God said to his people, I'm going to give you the promised land, and when you go to the promised land, you've got to make sure you drive out the enemy, and you've got to make sure you don't marry 
their daughters. Why? Because they're pagan. They're Gentile. You are to marry a Jewish girl that serves the true God of Israel. And if you go into a foreign land and you start serving, you, you marry a foreign woman, a pagan woman, she's going to turn your heart against me. Don't do it. But you know what the people did? They committed adultery on God and they did it anyway. Just kind of like what people do in our society. They don't listen to instruction. People don't want a pastor. They want a puppet. They want to be told stuff to have their ears tickled. God said, listen, I told you not to do it, and you did it anyway. Because the Bible says in Ezra chapter 10, look at it. Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, verse number 1. Ezra chapter 10, verse number 1. He, he starts, he says, Ezra was praying, he was confessing, he was weeping before a large assembly of people. And as a matter of fact, Ezra was weeping bitterly. Now why was Ezra weeping bitterly? Go to verse 3, go to verse 2. He says, verse 2, they've transgressed against our God, and what have they done? They've taken pagan women. Yep. Now what did God say in Deuteronomy? Don't marry pagan women. What did Ezra do? Ezra's a priest. He is heartbroken because these people rebelled against God and they are marrying pagan women. Verse 3. Verse 3, now therefore, this is what Ezra is saying, let us make a covenant with God to put away these wives. Now, you know what Ezra is saying? I want you to divorce them. I want you to get rid of these pagan women. I want you to cleanse the land of these pagan women. Get rid of them! Because they're turning your heart against God. Now that surely wouldn't go well in our society, would it? But this is what God's saying to these people. You need to get rid of these Jezebels. Get rid of them. They're no good for you. I told you not to marry him in the beginning. What was Samson's problem? He laid in the lap of Delilah. He laid in the lap of a woman he shouldn't have been fooling with. He wouldn't, what did he tell his parents? Oh, give her to me. She pleases me. Give her to me. He got in big trouble. She says, oh, Samson. As she rubbed her fingers through his hair, Tell me what is the strength of your power. You ought to be careful who you share your secrets with. He opened his heart up and shared the secret that it was in his head. So, Jeremiah, get this, Jeremiah 3, 8, this is what God says. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, God says, I told you not to marry these women. You went and married these women. And now God says, in Jeremiah 3.8, Then I saw for all the causes for which the backsliding Israel had committed adultery, and I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. I've divorced you. Now, hold on here. Why is God divorcing Israel? He's divorcing Israel because she had committed adultery on Him. Now, was He long-suffering? Yes. Was he patient with her? Yes. Did he give her time and time again? Yes. But God says, I can't deal with you. You're whoring around every weekend. Crying your ball, and then you come out, and you go back out in the streets, and you whore around, 
and you sleep with your foreign gods and you expect me to stretch out my mighty hand and provide for you. He says, I'm divorcing you. And guess what when he divorced them? The Babylonians came in and destroyed everything they had. God says, take my hands off. I'm not married to you any longer. You can have your foreign gods. So Babylonians came in and destroyed their land. Now, isn't it interesting that Hosea, who is a prophet, writes his, his book, and he says God is married to the backslider, and he gives a picture of Hosea and Gomer. Am I right? How God is married to the backslider. So even in their backslidden state, when God divorced Israel, God's love was still for Israel. He still loved Israel. And so why did I bring that up about divorce is because the only exception in God's eyes for divorce is adultery. God understands divorce. But that's the only exception. Not if you fall out in love or you don't like her anymore. Bro, you should have made that decision before you said, I do. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. God is serious about those who commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 14. Y'all are really quiet tonight. It's making me nervous. But can you all just wave your hand and say, I'm with you, preacher. Okay, all right. Is this all right? Is this all right? So Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit. There you go. Very Clean and crisp. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So God says just kill him. I'll just purge the place. Get rid of him. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 20. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 20. This is premarital sex. So listen, if you have the gift of singleness, don't you be having sex. God said, if, if you lay carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this you shall be what? Scourged. So don't be having premarital sex either, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Look at what this says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So this, there's scripture says don't commit adultery. Now it goes a step further. Don't even entertain it in your heart. Don't meditate upon having another person's wife. Don't do that. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28? Jesus said, don't entertain it either. Jesus says, but I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Doesn't mean he physically committed it, but he is entertaining it in his heart. And your actions is a result of your thought process. And so, what are you saying, Pastor? I am saying this, that divorce is something that God understands. 
God divorced His people because of adultery. And God is very hard against those who commit adultery. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, those who commit adultery will never inherit the kingdom of God. And that's listed with other sins. So it's very serious for those who commit adultery. Matthew chapter 1 verse 19. Look at this. This is a just divorce. You remember the story of Joseph and Mary. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. In other words, Joseph thought my wife Mary had committed adultery. The reason that she's with child is because she went away and stayed at her cousin's Elizabeth's house for six months, and she comes home and she's pregnant. Any man in their God-given mind would think that. And he's thinking, I'm going to have to divorce the woman because she's committed adultery. Not that she said, this baby is the son of God, because that's not grounds for adultery. It's not because he thought she was crazy. It's because he thought she committed adultery. Is that right? You know, John the Baptist was beheaded because he spoke against adultery, wasn't he? People don't like it. They get mad at you. Well, they, they cut his head off. <laughs> but Herod, remember, heard and said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been risen from the dead. Go on, read verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of the Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, or who he had married. So, because John said, go into verse 8, because John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John was preaching and said, listen, you can't be having your brother's wife just because you're attracted to her. And he spoke against it, and guess what? They cut its head off. Because that's what society does. Anytime you speak against the truth, they want to cut your head off because their source of authority is how they feel, and it's not the Scriptures. It's not the, now, if you are a Christian, your source of authority is the Word and not the way you feel. And if we can just learn that principle, we would save a whole lot of heartache in churches if we can just learn that your feelings is not your authority, the Scripture is your authority. And I hear an amen. The Scripture is your authority. So, here, now, isn't it interesting that Mary, Joseph didn't say, because you remember the stipulation for the adulterer was to kill him? Joseph never thought that. Joseph was just going to do it privately, so she's not an example. And God never killed Israel because they committed adultery. So it looks as though God was given grace in the idea of this uh, people committing adultery. There was, a, there was grace involved. Remember? They brought the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and they wanted to stone her. But what did the master do? He without sin let him cast the first stone. So even though the law was strict, how many knows there was a merciful God in the pages of the Old Testament? It was a merciful God full of grace. And he didn't execute these people because they committed adultery. It seems as though God was merciful. And even, listen to me, even when... Israel was committing adultery on God. And you say, Pastor, how does that have to do with adultery? It has everything to do with the Old Testament. And God's view of adultery has everything to do with it. Because that was the problem of the Old Testament. 
God's people always committing idolatry and adultery with God. Going after false gods. And after the Babylonians came in and destroyed their land and took 4,600 of them into captivity, it cured them of the problem. They never again went after foreign gods. But then the book of Malachi said, oh, you're not worshiping foreign gods any longer, but you're worshiping the true God, but your heart's not in it. So that's the problem in the book of Malachi. They stopped worshiping foreign gods. They repented of their sin because God sent the Babylonians and they destroyed their land. But God says there's another issue. Even though you're not worshiping your foreign gods any longer, your heart is far from me now. So God is concerned what you do physically and God is concerned what goes on on the inside of your heart. It's a, can, I, can I hear an amen? The prodigal son, what, did, what happened to the prodigal son? He was in the pigsty and the prodigal son said, he said, I will arise and go back to my father's house. And then the Bible says in verse 17, he arose and went to his father. Because that's what repentance is. Repentance starts on the inside and it's carried out by your legs. Somebody say amen. You will say to yourself, I'm not going to stay in this pigsty. And then he arose and went. Because repentance is twofold. It's not only it deals with what goes on the inside, but it physically has to do with something. So, in the New Testament, you, what about divorce in the New Testament? Well, now, let, let me say this. You know how we have theologians that will read the Bible and they will give their interpretation of what it means? Well, guess what? That was the same problem in Jesus' days. They had the Old Testament, but they had rabbis who would read it and they would give their interpretation of what it means. Well, depending on the rabbi, some of them may be a little bit more liberal than other people. All right? So even though, now everybody look up here, even though the Bible was against people committing adultery and God was strong against it, when Jesus came along, it was very relaxed because rabbis read the Bible and they said, oh, it don't really mean that. It's okay. God didn't really mean that. And there was two schools of thought for divorce in the New Testament. Hallel, this rabbi said, well, you can divorce for anything. And then I'm going to read to you what Hallel said that you can divorce your wife for. You ready? He said, you can divorce your wife for anything. Number one, if she burns your dinner, get rid of her. Okay, number one. Number two, if she spins around showing her ankles, she's not modest, get rid of her. And all my holiness brothers and sisters say amen. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> if she's spinning around, spin, showing her ankles, get rid of her. Number three, if she let her hair down in public, get rid of her. Number four, if she speaks to another man, you can divorce her. Number five, if she talks negative to or about your mother, divorce her. And the last one is, if she has no children, she is no good. Get rid of her. So, that's, that's the one camp. In the, now, now, hold on, listen. In the Old Testament, how many would agree to me it was very strict? Raise your hand. 
Then when Jesus comes along, the rabbis who read the Old Testament said, oh, it really doesn't mean that way. I think God was meaning something else. It kind of reminds me of the 21st century church. We have liberal six-foot icicles behind the pulpit saying, oh, God didn't really mean that. God really meant this. Is this all right? So this was the same problem then. Shamal was the other rabbi, and he was strict. He said, no, no, no. It's, it's adultery only. That's the only reason you get a divorce for it. Now, where did they get this from? They got it from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Now, just look at it. This is the scripture that both of these rabbis took it from. Verse, look at it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. That's the scripture. So these rabbis search the Bible, and they're trying to find a scripture to give them a reason for divorce, and they found one. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. And Hallel, remember Hallel was the one that you can divorce for any reason? This is what he said. He said, well, the phrase, when a man takes a wife, marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. He says, yep. A man can divorce. Hallel said, a man can divorce his wife if, he finds no, if she finds no favor in his eyes. So if she burns his dinner, that's not favor in his eyes. Get rid of her. If she's showing her ankles, that's not showing favor in his eyes. Get rid of her. If he talks bad about my mama, you know that don't have favor with me, so I'm getting rid of her. So that, that was the thing. And Shamel comes along and he says, no. He says to Hallel, because there are two different rabbis, he says, well, you, you have misinterpreted the scripture. Let's go back to the scripture. He says it's only divorce is only for adultery only. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Okay, when a man takes a wife, marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, so that's what he says, because he found no, because he has found some uncleanliness in her. What they what Hallel did not focus on was the uncleanliness is the Hebrew word which means illicit sexual adultery acts. They didn't want to focus on that because the religious leaders were getting a divorce anytime they wanted to. And that is why it brings me, that's why it brings me. Now, now, since you know that information, now read the scripture. Matthew chapter 19, verse number 1. And it came to pass when Jesus finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Great multitude followed him. He healed him. The Pharisees came to him. Now they didn't want information. They're just testing him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What rabbi were they listening to? That's right. Because they're coming to test Jesus. To see, because the Jewish leaders are thinking, we know what the rabbis have said to us. We, we know the, the teachers of the law. They've interpreted that we can get divorced for any reason. And, and so Jesus, are you going to come and 
give us another reason why we can, or you're going to upset the apple cart, so to speak. And so verse number 4, And he answered and said, now get this, now what, was, what did Jesus say? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he made them at the beginning? Now hold on. You know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is actually saying, I don't really care what Hillel said. And I don't really care how he interpreted the Bible. I'm bypassing him. And I'm going all the way back to the book of Genesis. I'm going back to the source. I'm going back to the source. I don't care how they interpreted it. Let me, let me just tell you something. The Bible is infallible, but your interpretation of it is not infallible. So before we criticize the church down the street and think we got it all, you better make sure you understand that the Bible is infallible, but you don't have a perfect understanding of everything. So he answered and said to them, have you not read that he made them at the beginning? He says, I'm not, I don't care what these rabbis interpret Scripture. I'm going, what happened in the beginning? I'm going to the source. And that, if you want answers, you've got to go to the source. He says, have you not read? Have you not read the Bible is what Jesus is saying. Have you not read the Old Testament? Now, why does God hate divorce? Well, he tells us why he hates it. Have you not read that at the beginning God made male and female? Verse 5, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined. The Hebrew word join, look at this. The Hebrew word for join is glued. For they shall be glued together. And the two shall become one. Verse number six. So then that they are no longer two, but they're one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Why does God hate divorce? Number one, because he made men and women for each other. They're supposed to be together. You're supposed to be in a relationship. And you're supposed to be together. He made them as a unit. Number one, as a unit. Number two, there is oneness. Verse number eight. He says, or excuse me, he says that you shall leave and cleave and you become one. There is oneness. Do you know that you can't divide one? One is an indivisible number. You can't divide it. The child is the product of the one. So you cannot, you cannot. You know, I was, I was reading, this is so, I was reading Timothy Keller. I was actually listening to a sermon on marriage about Timothy Keller, and he was talking about, this is a while ago, powerful. I suggest you read Timothy Keller. He's an awesome Theologian and scripture brings new insight. He was talking about marriage and people becoming one. And he said something I never forgot. He says, he was talking about how you're married, body, soul, and spirit. Physically, you're married, erotically, physically. Then you're married mentally, emotionally, socially. And then you're married spiritually, body, soul, and spirit. You're married. And he's talking about how in intimacy, how you are how you uncover your emotions with somebody. And the uncovering of your clothes is a picture of what you should have done emotionally. You should have uncovered emotionally with somebody. That's why premarital sex is a sin. It violates God's word, but you don't know that person. You haven't become one with that person. Oneness takes more than just a sexual act. One takes the uncovering of emotions 
One takes the uncovering uh, of yourself and being intimate with that person before you come together physically. And Timothy Keller brought that out, and I thought that was so powerful. How in, He says, I hate divorce. He hates divorce because they shall become one. And number three, why, is, why does God hate divorce? Because marriage is his own work. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. It's God's work. And so if it's God's work, let me ask you a question. Who wants to undo a work of God? Who wants to undo the work of God? Therefore, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. So the question you've got to ask is why and how would I want to undo the work of God? It is the work of God that brings people together in marriage. And if you commit adultery and you mess with somebody else's spouse and you get involved in somebody's marriages to break it up, you're on dangerous ground in God's eyes. I didn't say it. Why divorce? Why does people get divorced? Well, they get divorced because there's conflict. And that's so. There's conflict. And you know the word for conflict means two opposing forces clashing together. So there's divorce because there's conflict. And I would suggest there's divorce because of the curse. We're broken people. Uh, and the curse has a whole lot to do with it. Sin lay, lays at our door. It's crouching at our door. If you don't keep an eye on it, it will overcome you. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. I want you to see this. Verse number... Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, I'm sorry. Why is there divorce? I'm almost done, almost done, so hold on here. Why is there divorce? Verse 16, Genesis 3, 16, to the woman he said, I'm going to put, greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception and pain, you'll bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, he will rule over you. Then verse 17, and then to Adam he said, because you have indeed heeded to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten from the tree which I've commanded you not. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In twirl you shall eat it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth. And you shall eat the herb of the ground. In the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. So that's the curse. What is the curse? Man's curse is you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. The woman's curse is you're going to have children with pain and your husband will rule over you. That's the curse. I'm going to say it again. The curse is that men will have to work by the sweat of their brow and women will have children with pain and their husbands will rule over them. So what are you saying, Pastor? That's why there's divorce. Because there's a battle in the house. Women want to be in control. They want to be domineering, self-willed, and rebellious. They don't want the husband to be the leader. And husbands want to dominate without being gracious and loving. And now you have this conflict back and forth. He says, women, your desire is going to be your husband. It's the word towards. Your desire will be towards your husband so that he will rule over you. Men, because you've listened to her, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. That's the curse. And because of the curse, there is a battle in the house. Women want to rule over their husbands. 
Somebody say amen. Men, if they're not careful, will dominate their husbands, or their, the wives, and not be gracious and loving and lead like Christ would lead. So there's a battle. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, the Scripture is pretty clear about that. I didn't make it up. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. The Scripture is very clear that there's a battle between men and women like that. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Submit. The word submit is sub, come under. Come under. That means your husband shouldn't beat you. Your husband isn't dominating you. Your husband isn't controlling you. You give the right away to your husband for him to lead the home. Submit. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Why? Genesis 3.16. The curse is women, your husbands now will be installed as a leader over you. Because before the fall, both of you, there was no leader. Both of you were together, equal. Not now. Your husband's going to be a leader over you. Because that's the curse. Now, Paul says you have to submit to your husband. That's to the Lord. Verse number 23. For the husband is the head. That's probably from the book of Genesis, as Christ is the head of the church and is the Savior of the body. Verse number 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be subject to her husbands in everything. Verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives. So you don't be dictating here. Don't be ungracious. A wife will follow if you love her as Christ loves the church. So don't be ungracious. Don't be unkind. But love her. Why is he telling husbands to love? Because that's one of the things husbands have a hard time showing is love. And one of the hard times women have is submission. So that's why he's addressing it. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of the word. Verse 27. That he might present to her himself a glorious church. So he's doing the comparison here. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, in verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to your wife. So don't be domineering. Be the leader, but do it with understanding. Do it with graciousness. As unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together. So do it in the right attitude. So what about 1 Peter 3, verse 1? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even in some do not obey the word. They without the word may be won by the conduct of your wife. And when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not adore yourself merely by outward apparel, wearing gold and putting on fine apparel. Now that helps. I'm, thank God it helps. Okay? Can somebody say, thank God it does help? All right, verse number four. I appreciate it. Verse number four. Rather, let it be the person of the heart with incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So what are you saying, preacher? Why is there divorce? Because there's a battle in the home. Domineering forces want to be the leader. 
God says, I haven't created you to be the leader. I've created the husband to be the leader. And I've created the husband to treat his wife like Christ treats the church and to love her and to be honoring to her as the weaker vessel. But now we have men who want to dominate and control and women who want to be self-willed and rebellious. Therefore, marriage don't work, does it? It doesn't work. Marriage is the picture of Christ because we have to learn to love each other in spite of our failures and faults. So, in closing, what is the exception for divorce? There's really only two. Two. Number one, fornication. Jesus says in Matthew 19, Jesus is clear that there's only, Jesus is clear that there's one. Jesus is clear. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, the Greek word is poionia, which is the word we get porn, or pornographic, pornography. It does not mean you thought it. It meant you actually did it. So you divorce, you can divorce if somebody participated in the sexual act of sexual intercourse with someone Besides your spouse, poionia, sexual fornication. So if you're getting, if you're, if you want a divorce, you have to ask yourself: Is it because of fornication? If it's not, you can't get divorced. It's hard. That's why the disciples said, "Is it better that we just stay single?" But Jesus was kind of hard about it. Now the Pauline privilege is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he states that, that if the unbeliever's spouse departs, let him depart. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. The other exception is called the Pauline privilege, and that simply states that if the unbeliever departs, if he or she departs and they leave, you're not under such bondage, let them leave. If the unbeliever wants to leave, let them leave. If they desert you and leave, you're free to be married. Now, let me say this. If a couple divorces because of adultery, the innocent party can get remarried, but the person who committed adultery is not free to get married. As a matter of fact, if he or she remarries, the person they remarry is going to commit adultery with them. Only the innocent party is allowed to remarry. And what about remarriage? This is just very quick. Remarriage, well, there's three reasons for remarriage. Number one, you can remarry if your spouse dies. If you're a widow, widower. Is that right? 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, he says to the widows, get remarried. And if you can stay single, get stay single, but remarry. So if death do you part, you're free to get married. If death has taken your spouse, you're free under God's eyes to remarry. Number two, you are free to get remarried because of adultery. The innocent party is free. Jesus was clear about that. You, can't get, you cannot get divorced, as Hallel would say, for any reason. You can't do that. You cannot do that. And then you can get divorced for the Pauline privilege, and that's 1 Corinthians 7, 15, if the unbeliever spouse wants to leave. Some people think, well, what do you do if the, ha the husband just abuses you to the point and beats you where 
brutalize you to the point where you can't live with him, most people, most people feel like that falls under the Pauline privilege. And I'm not an expert in that, and we're just going to have to have, let the Holy Spirit deal with those issues. But some people, most people believe that falls under Pauline privilege if you are unable to live with them because of physical harm. But other than that, ladies and gentlemen, there is no justification in the Bible for just divorcing because you want to divorce. You can't do that. Why? Because two born-again Christians who are dedicated to Jesus and seek to honor Jesus will honor each other. Will seek to honor. Now, is it hard work? Yes. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Even the disciples were distraught. Like, this is hard. So, Pastor... What, what do we do in cases where it's not specified in Scripture, such as abuse, molestation, of course, that's, that's adultery that falls under sexual immorality, fornication. There are some gray areas that I'm not an expert to preach about. I don't even know all the gray areas, obviously. But my point to you is this, is that marriage and divorce and remarriage is serious topics and serious things that God takes to heart, and we shouldn't play around with it. You hear me? We should never play around with it. So what do I do if tonight you're saying, Pastor, I, I've, I've sinned. I've got a divorce, and it probably wasn't right. What do you do? What do you do in cases where you have got divorced and remarried, and you know it's not right, you didn't, it, it's not under biblical grounds? Some churches and denominations teach, well, what you need to do is break off that marriage and go back to your former spouse. I do not believe that. And I do not believe that two wrongs make a right. And I don't believe that God is in the business of breaking up another marriage. I do believe that if you're here and you say, there are some issues that maybe I didn't do right. You say, well, Pastor, what about if it was before I was saved? That has no bearing. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, he called the church, he said, you were adulterers. You were fornicators. So God even pays attention to it even when you're in your sin. It's not an excuse because you were in your sin. Marriage is serious whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. So, what do you do? What do you do in cases that we've messed up and, and I, by no means, would never advocate going back and breaking up a marriage? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not advocating it. This is what I am saying. The Bible says in 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, in verse number 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, I write to you, now my little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but for the whole world. If you feel like you've divorced and remarried and it's not under biblical grounds, I would suggest, number one, you acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you did not do it on biblical grounds. Confess your sin unto Christ Himself. Go to the third party. 
Go back to your spouse and apologize. Make amends because of your sin. And go forth from this forth on in the light that you know and share the gospel with others about marriage, divorce, and grieved marriage. But do not break up another home. Don't go back and try to break up that. Absolutely not. Just acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and go forth in the light of God. Amen. Because even in all of our hang-ups, even in all of our mess-ups, God was still faithful and gracious to His people of the Old Testament. And if God was gracious to them, ladies and gentlemen, He's much more gracious to us. But because He's gracious to us, doesn't give us a license to disobey the Word of God.